Hi everyone. Today I'm honored that uh, one of the world's most influential climate scientists is joining us uh, in the Planet Podcast. Michael E. Mann, he's professor for atmospheric science at Penn State University. He's known for the hockey stick graphs and also as a defender of climate science while being targeted by climate change deniers. He's also the writer of the excellent book, The New Climate War, which I can really recommend to anyone who's interested in, science, in climate change. And I believe it's one of the best books on climate change that I've read in the past few years. And I can tell you, I read quite a lot of these books. Michael, welcome. Well, thank you, Alex. It's great to be with you. And I really appreciate the kind words. It's great to finally have a, a conversation face to face. Yes, because we, we've we've been often in touch uh, by direct mail on the app and by emails, but we never yeah. really spoken. So it's it's great to uh, to have you in in the planet. Um, normally, I start with uh, some recent climate news. So this morning, I looked in in what the climate change news was, and I noted several examples of court cases. So there was in uh, Alaska, the Supreme Court had ruled against youth, <coughs> arguing that uh, the failure of the state of Alaska to take action on greenhouse gas emissions interferes with their individual constitutional rights. And you will, of course, remember from last week that we learned that uh, that was much more positive news, that a federal judge decided to invalidate the results of a huge uh, oil and gas uh, lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico and and the American judge said that the Biden administration had failed to properly account for the auction's climate change impact. So if we only look back five years or so, I don't recall reading about these kinds of court cases. Actually, I think my country, the Netherlands, uh, became kind of famous by winning this this uh, first case uh, against our government. And you've been fighting for decades to convince the people and the media and the politicians about the findings of climate science and you were fighting a well-funded disinformation campaign funded by the, the all-powerful fossil fuel industry. And did you and many of your colleagues now finally succeed to convince the people of the reality of climate change? And, and did we win the climate war because you're writing about a new climate war? Tell us about it. Yeah, I think it's also the case that the Dutch court also... Um, uh, found uh, uh, it, it, it found in favor of um, some environmentalists who had challenged uh, the um, you know a Shell uh, Royal Dutch Shell and uh, yeah. they are required now by the court to lower their carbon emissions I believe by fifty percent within this decade so so there's been some leadership when it comes to these legal cases certainly um, in in the Netherlands, but uh, we are starting to see some successes here in the United States as well as you allude to, uh, and it does tie into this larger uh, battle, uh, the the climate wars, uh, as I refer to them, the old climate war, which has essentially been won, was uh, you know this uh, war on uh, you know, the part of polluters fossil fuel interests, uh, uh, conservative uh, groups representing their interests, um, this effort on their part uh, to discredit uh, the basic science, the scientific evidence of human-caused climate change. Well, we've reached the point where it just isn't credible uh, anymore to deny that it's happening and to deny that we can see the impacts because we're seeing them play out almost in real time now. It doesn't mean that the fossil fuel industry has rolled over, has given up. 
Um, so indeed, they've turned to uh, these other tactics that I detail in the new climate war uh, in their effort to keep us addicted to fossil fuels, uh, because in the end, they don't care about the reason. They don't care about the path we take. They just care about the destination. They want us disengaged uh, and they want us to remain reliant on fossil fuels. And so whether, um, you know, they lead us to deny that the problem exists or they deflect our attention away from meaningful solutions, divide us, get us fighting with each other so we don't represent a united front, um, you know, convince us that it's just about individual lifestyle uh, choices so that we don't demand policy action and systemic changes uh, and even fostering uh, doom and despair, uh, doom mongering and despair mongering. If they can get us to believe that it's too late to do anything about the problem, you know, ironically, that potentially leads us, to, you know, to the same place, a uh, disengagement. And so these are the tactics that we are now facing. And that's really what the book is about, helping people sort of recognize these tactics and, and, and recognize how to push back on them because we, we can feel it. We are so close now to finally seeing the action that we've worked so you know, hard and, and, and long toward, but there are still these obstacles in our way. And so we need to recognize those obstacles so we can finally you know, act um, in, in a manner that uh, is consistent with the challenge that we face. Yeah, you, you mentioned two examples. One is that uh, people should focus on their own individual actions. And the other one that you mentioned is that people have kind of given up because we're doomed anyway. If we look at the first one, um, like me, you're also a vegetarian, uh, which uh, I read and I'm, I'm happy to read because I believe that it is good to take individual action. But I suppose you're not against individual action, but it's just not enough. Is that right? Should we take shorter showers and should we go on a biking holiday instead of flying to Tahiti or something? What, uh, what can we do as individuals? Yeah, and I, I should say I'm, I, I don't eat meat, but um, I'm, I, I guess I'm a pescatarian, uh, so I'm not all the way to vegetarian yet. Uh, but, um, but indeed, I find that I'm, I'm happier. I feel better. Uh, I feel healthier. Um, you know, there are all of these things that we can do, right, that they decrease our environmental impact, our, our carbon footprint. They make us feel better. They save us money. They set a good example for other people. Why wouldn't we do these things? Of course we should do all these things. What we have to guard against is this argument that if we do these things, then that solves the problem. That's all we need to do because that indeed does play into the agenda of polluters who would love to have us so focused on our individual carbon footprint that we fail to notice theirs. 70% of our carbon emissions come from just a hundred polluters. And so while we should do all these things that we can do to, to decrease our environmental impact, absolutely. We also have to make sure that we hold um, you know, polluters accountable and we hold our policymakers, our politicians accountable for acting on our behalf rather than acting in the interests of uh, a small number of polluting interests. Which is a well-known tactic used as you mentioned, by the tobacco industry and the gun lobby that uh, guns don't kill people, but people kill people. Um, and um, uh, you mentioned the campaign, what was it? Uh, the, the Crying Indian campaign, yeah. which, which I didn't know, but that's yeah. a typical example, I guess. 
Yeah, if you grew up in the States, you know, in, in the 1970s, as I did, then then you will remember this this ad. Um, it had this profound impact on us, this tearful Native American um, and, and uh, you know, is canoeing down this river that's been polluted by all this strewn uh, bottle and can litter. And it, it, it felt empowering. It felt like, yes, you know, we need to clean up our environment. But it turns out it was a PR campaign that was hatched on Madison Avenue by Coca-Cola. And the, the, the beverage industry, they wanted to convince us that we didn't need bottle bills. We didn't need systemic solutions. So we, they made it all about us to, you know, basically to, to further their interests, uh, because the bottom line is that acting in a systemic way, a bottle bill, these regulations would solve this problem at its source, but it would cost them profits. And thanks to their very effective uh, deflection campaign, it was extremely effective here in the United States. We have one of our other great global environmental crises today, the plastic pollution crisis. Thanks to the clever and effective use of a deflection campaign by industry. We have to recognize they're doing that right now on carbon emissions and climate. Yeah, yeah, it's good to hear, good to be aware of that. And, uh, and at the same time, still keep taking our individual actions, but only doing it ourselves. Uh, we're, we're not getting there. And then it's both. the other it's one, both. Yep. Jan, the, the other one that you mentioned is, is uh, on... Uh, on on the on the doom kind of kind of approach, I see that on Twitter. I have followers on Twitter that have given up all hope, and they write that to me in direct messages or in in comments on tweets that I send. And they believe that we have somehow passed the tipping point, and that nothing can save us now. And we will see feedback loops where warming leads to even more warming. And I remember a book I read last year or two years ago with with the opening line was something like, um, it is even worse than you think it is. And and, um, uh, and, and that, that tone setting, yeah. that also doesn't seem to help, right? If you can't do anything anymore. As I like to say, the truth is bad enough. Yeah. We, we don't need to exaggerate. Um, the truth is bad enough. We can see that. Uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. You see a lot of this on, on social media, and some of it is authentic, right? A, a fair amount of this are, are good-hearted people, people who ironically would otherwise be on the front lines um, demanding action, but they've been led astray by pretty clever manipulation. Um, the people at the very top of this are, are not innocent. There are bad actors who want to convince us that it's too late, either it's too late because of simply the, the physical response of the climate system, as you allude to, this idea of runaway feedbacks. That's not supported by the science. There's no science that, that supports the idea that we are committed to some sort of runaway warming. The science pretty clearly now indicates that how much warming we get is a function of how much carbon we burn. And the flip side of that is we bring our carbon emissions to zero – the, the warming, at least of the surface of our planet, stabilizes very quickly. Now, there might be some longer timescale responses, and we worry about this, the, the destabilization of ice sheets, for example. Um, but we basically stop the warming of the planet if we stop uh, polluting the atmosphere with carbon. Uh, it's so important to recognize that. And what's happened here is, you know, the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists in, in the book, um, have actually tried to convince 
many climate advocates that it is too late, either because of this idea of runaway warming, methane feedback loops, and the science doesn't support the idea that we're we're close to any sort of runaway methane uh, sort of uh, um, bomb, uh, you know, response of the climate system. If we warm the planet enough, if we do nothing, then yes, we start to enter into that realm, but we're not anywhere close to it now. And if we act now, that's not going to happen. But the other part of it is convincing us that our politics is so broken that there's no way that we can achieve meaningful action. Uh, And we actually see this um, in the wake of the COP26 Glasgow summit. You saw some of the you know, most well-known uh, climate change deniers like Mark Morano here in the United States, who runs an organization that has been attacking climate science for years. He used to work for James Inhofe, who was the biggest climate change denier in the U.S. The snowball guy. Senate. The snowball, snowball James Inhofe, exactly. Um, this guy, Mark Morano, uh, after uh, the Glasgow COP26 conference ended, he quoted out of context some climate advocates um, that made it sound like the entire process had collapsed, that it's unsalvageable, there's no reason to even continue with these multilateral uh, negotiations. Um, and, And indeed, the fossil fuel industry would love nothing more than for us to give up on any possibility of climate action. And we see that. We see that some of that messaging was weaponized in this case by the forces of inaction. There are other examples, as I talk about in the book. Um, you know, online, there are bad state actors. And, and Russia, for example, has promoted climate change denial. They want to monetize all of those fossil fuels that are, are buried beneath Russian soil. Um, and, and, and they have worked uh, for years um, using, you know, black ops, uh, social media campaigns, to influence American politics and European politics and Canadian politics in a way that stymies meaningful climate action. And, and we know that they have you know, armies of, of bots and trolls that pollute this space, the social media space, and are intended to take in well-meaning bystanders, you know, people who would otherwise be on the front lines, like I said, convince them it's too late to do anything and there's no possibility of meaningful policy action. Um, they, they want these people on the sidelines rather than on the front lines. Yeah, and I, I noticed on Twitter they're becoming more clever because a couple of years ago it was if I, whatever, re- retweeted Al Gore, then you got a message, Al Gore's lying and he's being convicted in court for lies, etc. Actually, I just got today an email, somebody writing to me, is it true, has he been convicted? Um but now it gets more clever. Now it's this thing in, in the last few weeks, I think it was you in a tweet that warned for it, this thing, creative society yeah. that then sends out tweets that you or I could have sent out. And then you go, you follow them and then you look into their accounts and then they come with all kind of quatch about uh, whatever solar radiation things <laughs> or, or the moon turning upside down or I don't know what else. And it's it's become more clever. They first lure you in, and 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 then they come with all this this disinformation. Yeah. So it, it's um uh, uh, it's it's a project of I believe it's called Alatra, which is yeah, actually like a, yeah. a group that's connected uh, to the Ukraine. It's actually a Putin friendly 
uh, Putin supporters within Ukraine. And so there's, there, there's this tie in uh, to, to the, the Russian government. Um, and you're exactly right. Uh, they had this big open online conference that they were advertising and they were sort of, um, you know, uh, poking people like myself on social media. Hey, you have to, you have to participate in this conference. This is the biggest conference. Um, and they were using, as you say, very clever language, climate emergency, climate crisis, the lang- the same language that, you know, our friend Gre- Greta Thunberg uses, right? Yeah. Um, um, but co-opting that language because they want to suck you in by making you think that, yeah, we're really about doing something about the climate crisis. And, and, and part of their messaging was you, you need to hear the truth. They're hiding the truth from you. Or what's this truth that's, that's been hidden from you? That climate change actually isn't caused by human activity. That, as you say, it's uh, cosmic rays or what have you. It's what we call, um, you know, in English, we call it a bait and switch, where you bait <laughs> people, you bring them in, And and then you give them a different product from the one that they thought they were going to get. It's very clever. It's very pernicious. And and it does demonstrate, you know, in a very, I think, uh, in a very visceral way, how even doom and despair has been weaponized by the forces of inaction. Yeah, yeah, actually. They've they've already invited me several times to speak (laughs) at their conferences Hoping, since I'm not a climate scientist by background, I'm, I'm, I, I have a security background and, and, uh, and I'm a, uh, I've been a diplomat for many years. So they hope that maybe this guy doesn't know <laughs> enough of it. So let's, let's ask him to be a speaker. Well, as um, a diplomat, uh, you're yeah. probably well acquainted with these sorts of tactics. So, oh, yes. You know. uh, a lot of these, uh, it's, uh, a lot of tactics of marketing are also used in diplomacy in all kinds of good and bad ways. So yes, it's just a reflection of society, I guess. And uh, yeah, you mentioned Greta. I think if we talk about hope and uh, and positive developments in the past five years, because there have been a lot, uh, I say that that is that is one of the big positive developments in the past few years of of uh, just one girl in those days, still fifteen, I think, uh, yeah. starting to protest, uh, literally just five minutes walk from my house in those days. Yeah. Um, in, in front of uh, the Stockholm, um, uh, the Swedish Parliament in Stockholm, yeah. and creating a mass movement of youth saying to our generation, uh, "Hey guys, it is now really time to do something about it because this is our future that you're ruining." Uh, yeah. Have you worked a lot with with young people in in your work? You know, I, I have. I've interacted with Greta and other youth uh, climate activists uh, here in the United States. Um, uh, and, you know, it, they're a diverse group. Of course, Greta rightfully gets a lot of attention. Uh, in, in a sense, she sort of created this movement. But it's, you know, it now consists of uh, millions of, of, of young folks around the world who are part of this movement and adults who, who, who are supporting them as well. And so, you know, one person really can make a difference in this world. And, and Greta demonstrates that you know it's sort of funny uh back in 2016 i actually co-authored a a children's book with um uh megan herbert who's actually uh from from the netherlands she's a children's illustrator uh and uh and and book writer and uh back in 2016 before uh greta had actually even emerged on the scene we co-authored this book the tantrum that saved the world which is about a young girl uh, named sophia um who uh 
throws this tantrum because all these animals are showing up at her doorstep uh, that have been displaced by climate change, a polar bear, a swarm of bees. Um, uh, she's very upset about that. But ultimately, this tantrum becomes empowering and she, she becomes the, the change that she wishes to see in the world, holding you know, the adults in her world accountable and taking it all the way up to you know, the president. And so it was sort of a profound example of life imitating art. Um, and now the, uh, the, the first edition of the book, um, Megan only made it uh, available through self-publishing. It was a limited uh, uh, edition, only 2,000 copies. But now the second edition, which has been expanded and updated, is due out next month, or actually due mid-March, uh, and uh, it's going to be um, sold by a major distributor, Penguin uh, Random House. And so it'll be available to a much larger audience. And we hope that it does help communicate the, the ethical dimensions of this problem. And that's what was so important about uh, Greta and these youth climate activists and advocates, is that they recentered this conversation where it always should have been. For too long, we've allowed it to be framed in terms of economic cost-benefit analysis, and, you know, and politics. And it's more than anything else. It's about our ethical obligation not to degrade this planet uh, for future generations and for those who had the least role in creating the problem around the world. Um, so I think that that's what's so powerful about the movement. It finally has recentered this conversation where it always needed to be. And it's part of why I'm optimistic. Yeah, wonderful. Actually, uh, the book, uh, Tantrum to Save the World, is amazing. So for people listening here, if you look for a, a book for your kids, it is funny, it is well-written, uh, it is it is very much uh, to the point. Well, most um, of the credit goes to, to Megan. She's just wonderful. It was it was great to work with her. I tried to do yeah, the scientific yeah. context, but yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, so I advise that to everybody. Actually, she asked me to write what, what's that in English? That you write something on, oh, on the blurb. back cover of the book? That's right. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. So, so, yes. Uh, so I, uh, I I wrote basically these lines at the back of the book that it's, uh, that yes. it's wonderful. Yes, so, uh, now I, I, I've seen it. Maybe yes. I should have her Thank in you. one of the next podcasts uh, to, uh, that would to be wonderful. tell more about the That'd book. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll invite her. I promise that uh, right here. I'm still in touch with her. <laughs> um, I had a, a few more things. I'm also looking at the clock, but I have a few more things I would I would uh, like to cover. We can do a like a lightning that, round. I'll, I'll keep my answers short. Yeah. <laughs> a question that uh, came up several times uh, in 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 a recent podcast. What about nuclear? Everybody agrees on renewables, uh, solar and, and, and wind turbines. Uh, wonderful. We all agree we don't want coal, we don't want oil and, and uh, gas. It's also not good. Um, nuclear seems to be somewhere in the middle. Um, I spoke uh, Jim Hansen about it some time ago, and he said we don't really have the luxury to pick and choose uh, because we all want solar and, and wind, but uh, we, we, we might have to go down that road. Um, is nuclear safe enough and is it economically efficient enough or should we go fully for wind and solar and just become more efficient? Where are, okay, now I asked like five questions and it <laughs> promised to be short. So no worries. Um, where yeah. do we go? 
Yeah, so I respect uh, Jim greatly. I respect his point of view. I respect the point of view of people who think that nuclear is a, a you know important option um, in addressing the climate crisis. I myself am, am not convinced it is, um, and I go through that in some detail in the book in the New Climate War. Uh, you know, uh, renewable energy is cheaper, um, and some of the arguments and nuclear, you know, it does come with these uh, risks, right? Um, obviously, uh, radiation. Uh, but also uh, nuclear, nuclear pr- proliferation and, and conflict. Um, so we understand that, that it comes with these risks, and it's really expensive. It turns out it requires huge government subsidies to be viable. So if you're sort of a conservative, if you're like a free market conservative, you know, there's, there's this, um, there is this sort of um, this internal contradiction. If you're a free market conservative, it doesn't make sense for you to be arguing for nuclear uh, energy because it's not viable in, in the market against cheaper sources of energy. Now, one of the arguments has been that we, we just can't scale up renewable energy fast enough. There's storage issues. The sun isn't always shining. The wind isn't always blowing. A lot of that has been solved now. We do have um, s- significant new technology for energy storage. We have smart grid technology. Um, we have the tools now to solve this problem with renewable energy. I'm convinced that that's the case. There are experts in this field who have made a compelling argument that that's the case, like Mark uh, Jacobson of Stanford. Um, And so um, there is a solution that's cheaper. It comes with less risk. Um, The only obstacle here isn't technological. At this point, it's it's political. We just need policies that, you know, that, that, that basically speed up this transition that's already underway uh, from fossil fuels to renewable and clean energy. Um, we can do it. I'm convinced that we can. And we don't have to follow this riskier path of nuclear or geoengineering or some of these other uh, technologies that can supposedly save us. Because that geoengineering is uh, something like Bill Gates is, is, is quite in favor of geoengineering. Um, you, you've been in, uh, well, I can't say a conflict, but you've been quite a bit in debate with him, I think, about his book, on uh, which which partly promotes geoengineering. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's it, it's great that someone like Bill Gates is, you know, using his platform to raise awareness about the climate crisis. But I think his prescription is the wrong one, is potentially a dangerous one. It, it sort of leads us down this dangerous path of, you know, nuclear, of course, he's advocated for, um, and he's personally invested in it. Geoengineering, manipulating our planetary environment in a way to try to offset global warming. Again, he's personally invested in the technologies to do that. This was actually lampooned in in the film, uh, Don't Look Up, where there's this technology billionaire. I won't go through it. You're, you know, everybody who hasn't seen it should watch it. Um, But uh, this, this, this tech billionaire who basically tries to convince us that the real solution to dealing with this uh, comet that's going to strike us and, and, and kill the planet is to use this dubious technology that he profits from rather than solving this problem safely. And I won't give away the ending, but um, they, they, they don't take the right path. <laughs> they, they follow him <laughs> down the wrong path. I love that movie. And I can imagine, how do I say this politely? When you were looking at the movie, did you did you recognize anybody? <laughs> so I watched the movie. Um, Netflix folks gave us a link um, so we could watch it at home before the, the film actually uh, went live. And I've been working with them, you know, on, on, to help 
publicize the, the film. It's been great. It's been an honor to do that. I really appreciate the work that Adam McKay, the director, has done here. And I'm a big fan of him and his work and Leo DiCaprio and Jen- Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, but um, so watching this film, it's just my, my 16-year-old daughter, me and, and my wife um, on our you know, home uh, you know, uh, theater here down in the basement. And my daughter says, the scientist guy, I think he's you. <laughs> like his mannerisms is, and, and, and I was sort of just joking about it. I do know Leo DiCaprio. We've, we, you know, we've interacted quite a bit in the past. And then in an interview, he actually <laughs> name checked me. He mentioned my name and, you know, some of the scientists who had, uh, as the scientist who had sort of inspired in part that character. Um, I would hasten to point out that I don't think he's accusing me of, of some of the more negative attributes of the character, <laughs> marriage, uh, infidelity and other things, but just sort of the pressures uh, that you're under and the frustration being a scientist who understands the depth of this problem and encounters a not entirely willing public when it comes to the messaging around it. Yeah, I can imagine the the frustration of of that uh, uh, that scientist. Uh, what uh, Dr. Mindy? Dr. Uh, Mindy, uh, yes. Yeah, you you must you must recognize so much of that. I think a lot of us way. do. I think a lot of us represent attributes of him. Uh, yeah, know, in ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and just as well, you can recognize the the villain, if you want to call him uh, the the. Uh, the, the 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 multi-billionaire type Peter Isherwell, uh, played by Mark. Uh, oh, he's a. I think is he, he may even be a Dutch actor. He's a Scandinavian. I forget. Um, Mark Par Par. Forgot the name of the actor. He's just wonderful. I mean, it, it almost steals the show. It's so. Yeah. It's so eerie. He's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yes, seems to be a bit of a mix between I don't know Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and there's a bit of Andy Warhol in him as well in his looks. There, there is, and some definitely some Bill Gates thrown in when it comes to geoengineering. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, so. So anyone who has not seen this movie, uh, I, I think it is uh, it is it is really really wonderful to see. Um, I uh, looking at at some last things. I was I was looking through this morning. Um, I saw, and that's not from this week, it's from a couple of weeks ago, that uh, an, an number of, um, the number of Americans that now <clears throat> actually believes in climate change, and that is uh, by um, Tony uh, Lazarowicz, if I say his name, name right, yeah. the guy. Yeah, Tony Lazarowicz and Ed, Ed Maybach, um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I met Tony in my days at, uh, at Yale in 2014. Um, they say now that uh, from the six categories of, of people that you have, from being alarmed to all the way to completely Dismissives. ignoring uh, yeah. and denying it, the, the two categories of being either concerned or being alarmed, so let's say the top, yeah. the top 33% uh, of, 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 of being worried... Uh, has now enormously grown. It's now six out of ten yeah. adult Americans yeah. that are actually worried about climate change, and I, I think that is that is positive news because yeah. you need to be worried before you take any kind of action. I think. Yeah, and you and you you know what? Uh, What's also interesting, uh, Alex, uh, that um, the 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 people in the most dismissive category, the dismissives, those who actively deny that climate change is even happening are now in the single digits. It's like 8%. Yeah. And, and yet it feels like 
they uh, they have so much greater a presence on our social media. Um, you would never guess that it's only 8% of the population, but that's the problem is that there is this megaphone and we do have bad actors that are amplifying this small fringe viewpoint to make it feel like it's pervasive. And what's so pernicious about that, the, what they want us to think is that there is this groundswell of opposition, even if we accept that this is a problem, um, if we really believe that our neighbors and, and our friends uh, are, you know, uh, bear antipathy towards climate action, we're less likely to talk with them about it. We're less likely to bring it up. Um, and that's what they want. They want to silence um, that conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's positive news. I remember that only the, a couple of years ago when one of the one of the IPCC reports came out, and now I'm talking about maybe that was probably the, the latest big one. So let's say about about seven years ago. On the national news in the Netherlands, let's say the BBC of the of the Netherlands, when the IPCC report came out of the best scientists in the world, and you were one of the people that contributed to it, uh, which said, of course, I don't know exactly what was this report that came out, but climate change is bad, it's man-made, yeah. we should be worried, we should take action, we can still take action, etc. All, all the all the lines were in there. That report got like two minutes attention on the main news. And then they interviewed a guy who called himself a science journalist. He looked maximum 20, but I guess he was younger. He got like three minutes and he found uh, a page note somewhere on page 625 (laughs) saying somewhere there was a note like, the scientists are not really in agreement on this particular issue. (laughs) And he had like three minutes to say, well, even the climate scientists don't know what they're talking about. And this, this this is just what it should be, I guess, seven years ago now. Um, So, well, we, 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 we've made some progress. progress. Yeah. 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 There's much um, false balance than there used to be. And so that's a minor victory here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's journalists are trained to uh, to be neutral and show both sides of the argument. But in this case, there wasn't an argument because yep. all scientists already agreed. It wasn't even the ninety-seven percent that you yep. heard, heard from years because that three percent has been researched, yep. and that was all complete nonsense uh, as well. Right. As um, as as a very last uh, question. Um, is there anything for people that are listening? Uh, most people listening to this, this podcast are already concerned or alarmed about climate change, yeah. and they they accept the basic science and they are worried. Um, what is the key message that you would like to give to the average listener to this podcast? Yeah, I would I would boil it down to two words, um, and this is my tagline these days. Um, it's urgency and agency, both together. Urgency without agency um, leads us towards, you know, frustration, um, disengagement, disillusionment. Um, so, yes, it is urgent. We have to bring our carbon emissions down dramatically by 50% within this decade to uh, avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So we need massive action now. But the agency is it's not too late to do it. Um, there is a path forward. And so we have to recognize this, as bad as things might seem, um, they could get a whole lot worse if we fail to act. And it's not too late for us to act. It's still possible for us to 
you know, create a better future for our children and grandchildren. And so let's not be taken in by the various tactics of the inactivists, which include among them convincing you that it's too late to do anything. It's not. Thank you for uh, those people that are listening live and uh, for those people that will listen to this podcast afterwards. That's normally many more people than uh, that are uh, able to listen live. Know that within a couple of weeks, uh, you can also listen live on Android because we are still on uh, iPhone. And uh, even sooner than that, you can already listen live on the website. So either from your desktop or your iPhone or from uh, your Android uh, phone, uh, you can listen live uh, via the website. So I think that is really positive development of this app, of which I'm quite enthusiastic because it's the only one you can just use on your iPhone. And it is the only one where you can both listen live as well as listen afterwards. So you're basically joining a live uh, recording in the podcast. No, Rick. Hi there. Just joined late, but I was interested in uh, in your views about um, the Nordhaus work that obviously received a lot of acclaim and suggested that the uh, overall impact of climate change, while significant and you know certainly something measurable on the timescale of a hundred years would represent kind of a, a small change in the overall growth trajectory. Curious about your response to that. Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a good one. It's an important one. You know, uh, Bill Nordhaus, you know, has made important contributions uh, to, you know, this, the, the, the basic enterprise of doing quantitative cost-benefit analysis for climate mitigation, you know, and, and his students and postdocs and associates have gone on to do very important work as well. Um, but we need to sort of understand that while his contributions were, were seminal, they're not definitive. Um, there are a number of shortcomings, as there often are with sort of initial work. And, you know, there's a more nuanced uh, approach that's been taken by other researchers more recently that, you know, calls into question whether, for example, you can use social discounting in the way that it's used to sort of discount, dismiss impacts that are felt far in the future with this idea that the economy will grow so quickly that it makes more sense for us just to grow the economy and we'll be able to fix these problems really efficiently and easily in the future. That just doesn't work when you've got tipping points, when there are irreversible collapse, you know, collapses that can take place of ice shelves and ice sheets. And, and so, you know, recognition um, that, you know, in challenging this idea that we should be discounting uh, future generations, because essentially that's what you're doing then. You're saying the, the, the world inherited by our children and grandchildren, uh, their lives are somehow worth less than ours. That is the underlying assumption when you use discounting in that way. And people like, um, you know, um, uh, Stern, uh, Lord Stern, uh, you know, have uh, taken issue with this discounting, have argued we should really be using 0% or a very low discounting rate um, in those sorts of calculations. Um, we need to take into account tipping points, that there are impacts that are irreversible. Once it happens, you know, you're stuck with it. And also this idea that we can even think of climate damages as just some fixed percent of gross domestic product. As I like to say, there is no economy on a dead planet. Um, and that sort of thinking... Uh, has rightfully been questioned now. And, and, and there are, in my view, more nuanced approaches that are being taken now um, using different damage functions, using different approaches that come to the conclusion 
that, uh, you know, that Nordhaus's work probably greatly underestimated the damages of business as usual, um, fossil fuel burning. And more, you know, again, more refined work suggests it, it reinforces the notion that we want to decarbonize our economy quickly. Um, and the cost of inaction will be far greater than the cost of taking action. All right, thanks. That's that's informative. One more quick question, if I may. Um, curious about the uh, your your own history. I I know that there was this controversy that you wrote a book about, uh, you know, related to historical reconstruction of of uh, you know past temperature over the last thousand two thousand years, um, and that there was this contentious back and forth on that. I think the main argument against your position. Uh, was that your original models were such that when, uh, you know, simulated data that had no uh, temperature trend over this period was fed into your models, uh, your okay, models look. would kind of data mine to produce a All right. stick. So we're, we're, your we, yeah, I, I was going to say we should limit it to one question per person, but I will, um, you know, quickly respond to that. Uh, yeah, you know, there was a team of scientists just earlier this year that published a reconstruction that overlaps ours perfectly and actually goes back now more than 20,000 years. So our conclusion, which has been reaffirmed by now literally dozens of researchers, um, is not, you know, our original conclusion was the warming that we've seen over the you know past few decades is unprecedented in a thousand years. The latest work suggests that applies for tens of thousands of years and potentially much longer. And many of the arguments that you've uh, cited were actually refuted in a report of the National Academy of Sciences which demonstrated that, um, you know, the, the, there, w- there were a couple contrarians. Um, one of them was a, an economist associated with a right-wing econ- economics institute. The other was in the mining industry. And that they had um, done some really questionable manipulation to try to argue that our, our work was, you know, somehow flawed. And the nice thing about science is there is this self-correcting machinery that is the peer review process. Um, and these assessments. And so the assessment of the scientific community in the two decades since our work has been not only were we right, but our conclusions were actually not even strong enough. The recent warming we now understand, given the far more you know, extensive data that are available, is not only unprecedented in a thousand years, uh, it's tens of thousands of years. Um, maybe uh, one question from one other person, maybe. Okay, <laughs> we do one last. Uh, thank you, Rick. We do one last question from uh, David, only one. Um, uh, David, can you unmute yourself? Are you there, David? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Hi, Mike. We can hear you. Hello. Hi, Mike. This is Dave Graves from Napa. Um, Hi, Dave. (laughs) Hard to believe your daughter's 16. When she visited us, she seemed like she was about six. But anyway, I'm calling about the whole rooftop solar thing in California, not to get too deep in the weeds. But what the problem seemed to one of the problems seemed to me was that there was this back and forth amongst people who are really on the same team. Yeah, but there was this ideological purity thing, and there ended up being a lot of ad hominem attacks against people like Severin Bornstein and uh, yeah. the NRDC. And their point—I mean, it wasn't that hard to read the fine print and say, "Oh, maybe they have a point." So, how how do we get away from that? 
Yeah, and you know, you get it. So this had to do with the the solar um, uh, tax credits um, in in the state of California and, uh, that were rates, uh, also the uh, in, in the, the yeah net, net metering rates. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it gets at this larger issue, which is infighting. You know, it only helps our adversaries. You know, when we start, you know, these sort of purity tests um, and this idea that, you know, everybody has to achieve perfect, you know, uh, climate purity. Uh, you know, if you're not a vegan, if you you fly, you know, um, to see your relatives uh, over the holidays, if you do any of these things that somehow you're not on our team, that you're not, you know, uh, doing your due diligence in addressing the crisis. I think that that is very harmful. And in fact, as I, you know, detail in, in the book, um, the, the inactivists have really worked at stoking those fires um, and, 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 and sort of prying open those cleavages within the movement to get us fighting with each other dividing us because then of course we we don't speak with a single you know uh a united voice demanding change and so we have to be aware of how this sort of infighting and this contentiousness and you know um and 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 sort of friendly fire you know uh, battling with people who are on the same side as us how that is used how that is leveraged by the forces of inaction it's so important to, to, to understand that. And I think this is, you know, Dave, just the latest example of that um, in, in what's playing out in California, which is sort of a, you know, a beacon to the rest of us. I mean, California has been such a leader uh, when it comes to the renewable energy transition and sort of painting, you know, the, the path forward for the rest of us, for the other states. It's so important that we not allow Californians to devolve into this circular firing um, you know, squad, um, and, 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 and continue, and California continues to provide that leadership. Wonderful. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, uh, David, also for, for asking the question. And um, I would, uh, would like to end here because we continued longer than, uh, than I had uh, promised, Mike. I'm very glad that you gave us a bit more time, and it's wonderful to hear all your insights. Stay on the Zoom. Thank you, all listeners. I will uh, I will enter room now. Uh, last comment. Uh, next Thursday, 3 o'clock Eastern Time, uh, I'll look together with Alistair Doyle, uh, the former Reuters uh, environment correspondent. I will look back at uh, all the climate uh, change news of last week, just like we did in the previous weeks, uh, every Thursday, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. I hope you will uh, join again and uh, to see you there. Thank you. Bye-bye.